Welcome to another edition of Inside the War Room. Ryan Ray here, as always. And today we have on um, the oil and gas guru himself. <laughs> Thank you. Anasi. Anasi, you know, there's very few things that excite me on Twitter, like when you have liked or retweeted something that I have sent out or been a part of, because your traffic is huge. You've got like 70,000 Twitter followers. It's, it's absolutely insane. Um, you are, I think, the, the, the local, at least Texas uh, Twitter like you had to have the biggest Twitter following in Texas, right? As far as oil and gas professionals go. Um, I, I don't know. I never looked at uh, the following and where they are from, but uh, uh, my followers, generally speaking, are uh, biased. Most of them are uh, fossil fuel uh, supporters. There are some people from the other side who are, in a sense, spying on me. <laughs> <laughs> and, and there are some really reasonable people on the other side following me, too. Uh, uh, so I, I am really proud of my supporters. I think the interaction with them taught me a lot in various ways. Uh, the, the amount of, of information and clarifications I get from some of the followers uh, is just amazing. Yeah, yeah. real quick on that. One of the things I tell my newsletter subscribers is, is they will send me back an email like, hey, when you said this, what did you mean here? Or I don't think that's right. And what I've learned is, is that I will write something and I think it makes a lot of sense and it's really clear. And then someone else will read it completely different. And then when they tell me how they read it, I'm like, oh, okay, that's, I see how you read that way now. So it's, it's unbelievable how much the feedback helps and kind of uh, you as the person putting out content, understand how to communicate better. And then also there's things that you just miss. So I've, I've really enjoyed, um, I don't obviously have- Well, let me tell you and tell the followers a couple of things here. They are extremely important. Um, the, the best thing in life for me basically is writing because I learned from, from writing more than university, more than any course, more than anything else. But there are a couple of things here. The first one is when I used to teach at the university, I used to stand up in front of students and talk. If they don't understand, I see their faces changing. I can see the, the expressions. So I can change the story. I can change the way I'm doing it. I can just bring another example, etc. The problem with writing is you don't know who is reading. So you, you don't see their faces. And over time, you, you develop this, in a sense, sixth sense, where you, you, you start imagining how their reaction to your writing and your writing improves substantially in this case. To me, that's what the benefit of writing, I, in a sense, I, my lesson was probably I should write those timeless articles, and I did, because that's the way to go. You reach a level where you think, well, this is probably the best way to do it. The second one is, and I, I uh, tweeted uh, this several times because it is an important lesson. One of the problems I learned when I was in private equity is that... Uh, people perception matters because perception becomes reality. And even what you said does not matter anymore. It's true or not, it doesn't matter. So to give you a, a life true example, when uh, uh, we once we sent a report and we said that uh, uh, it is, um, I think the expression was, um, uh, it's unlikely that oil prices will decline below 80. And then they declined later on below 80. And then we got some investors who are extremely angry. They said, you said it will never go below 80. And I never said that. But their perception was, right. I said that. Right. So between 
writing for those you don't see and between looking at the perception, I think that improves writing substantially. Yeah, and I'll just add one more comment to that. You know, I think a lot of people, I am by no means a, a great writer, um, but it's funny if I have a, a topic that I'm passionate about, I make it put out a couple of good, decent pieces. But then that next day, it's really hard. It's like, okay, it's like right now, I'm like, okay, what am I going to write about this week? And you start thinking about it, like, okay, well, how do you phrase that? What are the order? You know, how do you lay this out? And it, it, it's hard to put it on paper because if me and you are talking, I can kind of respond to you. I can kind of flow back. But as you say, you're, you're, you're kind of writing for this person who you can't see. And then you got to order your thoughts in a way. But it also makes you understand arguments better, respond to people. So it, it, it's, it's, a, it's a benefit that I think more people should spend more time doing, even if it's something is writing a movie review or um, something about the sports game, just to help them order their thoughts and to kind of figure out how to communicate better. So um, it's kind of a lost Well, yes. to, to me, just kind of to, to look at it uh, on, on the other side, uh, uh, it's exactly what you said, but it's on the other. The other side basically is writing for me, it's just like uh, a woman uh, delivering a baby and the, the, it, everything is going wrong. <laughs> and it, it is so difficult. And the, the, the pain and the screaming and the yelling and just like, and then you reach a point like you are going to, to just, your brain is going to explode. And then you deliver that beautiful baby. And that ends the story. That's true. I mean, oh, sometimes right. I repeated, there are articles basically where I throw six, seven drafts in the trash yeah. before I finish them. Yeah. That's the process of learning basically uh, from it. And again, I learned from writing more than anything else because the way uh, you, you have to uh, support your arguments and the way you, you are going to present them, uh, th this is really uh, kind of a college degree on its own. Yeah, I, I'll just say this. I have, I like the way you said that. I'm going to steal that from you because I have a, a piece that's 3,000 words I typed up in a day. I, I, I sat down, I was in the zone, and I typed it up, and then I went back to read what I had put on the paper, and I'm like, Oh no. Oh no. Like it's a six, seven, eight draft type piece of a uh, piece of work because it's, it's got a long way to go. Okay. Let's get to oil and gas. Uh, go ahead. Yes, um, oh, okay. Uh, let's get to oil and gas. Um, you sent me something a week or well, like you say, it feels like an eternity ago. Um, and let's talk about it here. And so you have a Twitter thread, which I'll link to in the newsletter. It says, um, so what is this 13 trillion decline in oil producing government's revenues that the media is citing so one of the things that you're very good at is um probably the best i know i know of at least is is seeing the narrative here and then going and saying this is what's actually being said so there's there was at least a couple weeks ago a 13 trillion decline in oil producing revenue from these uh, opec member donations i assume uh what's going on here with this and why was it important for you to cover it well, that is uh, a report came out. It's not even a report, but it's, a, let's say, a write-up from Carbon Tracker written by uh, uh, three people. And the media went crazy over it, but not a single journalist questioned it. And whatever this write-up is, it's truly a joke. And the reason why, and I, we don't have time to go over all the details, but think about it this way. They said that we are going to adopt one scenario out of the IEA, the International Energy Agency scenarios, and see what's going to happen to the revenues. The IEA produces several scenarios in its outlook every year. And one scenario is called the sustainability scenario, where if all the governments basically uh, kind of 
behave in a way where they really want to keep the temperatures of the globe down uh, like 1.5 degree uh, Celsius above the pre-industrial revolution, whatever these things are. And if they do this, and if they do this, if they do this, if they do this, then this is going to happen to oil demand, and this is what's going to happen to supply. And to make, to estimate demand and supply, they don't estimate prices. So let me be clear here. The International Energy Agency does not forecast prices. What they do is, in their scenarios, they assume a price. So the carbon tracker people picked up a scenario. The scenario basically is based on a $40 oil. Why the IEA chose $40 oil? Because they said, look, this is a scenario where the demand is going to collapse for oil. But in a competitive market, we cannot go below marginal cost. And they think that the marginal cost is $40, and therefore, we cannot go below it. So the $40 is not a forecast. It's just an assumption. And then they estimate the supply and demand. But the IEA itself, when they started the scenario, the first two lines, they said, we don't believe this scenario is going to happen. I get left out. So the author of the scenario said, this is not going to happen. Why carbon trackers picked it up and made it the theme of their article? Then they took the assumed $40 and they said, oh, Reisted Energy expect the price to be $60. So we are going to assume that $60 is representative of the industry forecast. And they compared the $40 to $60. They took $20, multiplied by production, and they ended up with $13 trillion in 20 years. Mm. That's research. Yeah. <laughs> okay? That, that's number one. Number two, what they did not pay attention to is, again, what the IEA is trying to do is say, okay, under this price, what will happen to demand? Under mm. this price, what's going to happen to supply? Mm. And the result of the IEA there is a difference between supply and demand. Listen to this. There is a difference between supply and demand of 44 million barrels a day. Okay. For the listener who doesn't know, it, I know we don't probably have all the 2020 numbers. Out, but in 2019, how many barrels a day did we consume globally? 100 million. <laughs> so you're saying 44 million barrels a day. You're talking. Difference. 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 That's the difference. Know, That's a shortage. Right. That's what I'm saying. Like that. okay. So the carbon, carbon track and people basically ignored that the IEA said this will never happen, ignored the fact there is a 44 million shortage. What that means is that $40 assumption isn't going to happen when you have 44 million shortage. Prices could be three, four, five, six hundred dollars yeah. at that time. Uh, I know we are not going to spend the whole day on this, but uh, here is another one. Uh, it is very important for people to realize that, assume that oil demand is going to decline. And by 2050, pick up any number, whether 100 million, 75, 60, 40, all of that has to be fresh oil between now and 2050. Imagine that we do need trillions of dollars, whatever the scenario is. But what carbon trackers people missed was the following, that even with lower prices, even when prices decline and demand decline, 
we got to remember that supply is going to respond and the high cost producers are going to exit the market and then the market is going to be tight again and prices could increase again. So even if global demand decreases from 100 million in 2019 to 75, whatever the year is, it is possible that we might end up with $150 oil regardless. So how revenues are going to decline? Okay, so let's talk about that for one second. And I think me and you have talked about this. I don't know. I talk about it as often as I can. Um, when you look at, so we're, it's February, 2021. So you use the kind of term 2050. That's kind of the popular term to use, um, when you have these projections to presume that we are going to be less than 100 million barrels a day, which was the 2019 number and 2050 to me, um, where we sit at today is either a, a belief in some new technology that's going to revolutionize the market that we do not currently have access to. So something new will show up that could happen, but it's not here yet. Or you're not, you're, you're basically subjecting 4 billion people, 4 billion people to the current level of poverty that they currently are for the next 30 years, basically. I, I don't know how we get, we, we stay at the 100 million barrel a day, a day mark unless you, I mean, unless you see a huge shift in just how oil consumption is used because I look at places like Africa, South America, or even China. China's the, you know, you look at China's oil consumption per capita, it's very low. If their income continues to rise, they will blow past us. Am I missing something here? I don't know how. No, I, I think if you recall, we did talk about these things in the past, but I'll repeat it again here. The first fact is there is no or very limited competition between oil and renewable energy in the industrial countries, China and India. And the reason why, because renewable energy is used to generate electricity. Oil is not used or barely used in some of those countries to generate electricity. So the idea, a lot of people on Twitter and others, especially Europeans, basically, when they say, oh, you are an oil guy defending oil, when I talk about renewables, there is no competition. There is no competition between oil and renewable energy in Europe, period, end of story. So... That to, back to your point. So they can build as many wind turbines as they want. It has no impact on oil. That's number one. Number two, the impact is coming from electric vehicles. Okay? And it is very easy to measure the impact of electric vehicles. We know what they are replacing. We know how many miles. We know the uh, fuel consumption of each car. We can calculate that. So it's basic math to realize this. At the same time, those people in Africa, Latin America, and other places basically are going to consume more oil as their income increases. They need more energy, and oil is part of that energy mix. So if you look at the growth of energy in various countries, and you look at electric vehicles, if you look at the net, based on calculations are made, and they are very basic calculations, by the way, so anyone can make them. By 2050, the number of electric cars has to be 700 million or above to keep oil demand at 100 million, the one you mentioned in 2019. 700 million. How many we have on the road right now is about 12 to 13 million. And we have to do all of this in 30 years. The issue that people are not paying attention to is the following. First, all those 12, 13 million vehicles, first, Many of them replaced natural gas. The second is they replaced efficient cars. 
efficient gasoline. They did not re replace the gas guzzlers yet. So the impact is very limited. And now we are, with more data coming to the market, we are learning that they are driven way less. And in some cases, uh, half of what ICE car is driven. The third point is, if you look at the data from Norway, because everyone is talking about Norway, the decline in fuel consumption in Norway is not proportional to the increase in the number of electric vehicles. At the same time, their economic growth has been declining in the last two, three years, so, which means that the, 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 the proportionality basically is even smaller uh, in this case. So it's very hard to see how oil is going to peak now or in two years or in 10 years or 20 or 30. Yeah, and, and real quick, we'll move on from this. I'm curious your thoughts about China's role in the EV market because um, they are big into the, the battery space. And if you look at Tesla, Tesla, to my knowledge, is the only company in China that has no subsidiary, any company of, of stature at least. Um, so Tesla seems like it's in a precarious spot because if Elon Musk says the right thing, <laughs> they will get shut down. Um, uh, China's talking about you know banning rare earth exports. Um, how much of the EV market is based upon China's ability to continue to produce what is needed to make these batteries? Well, uh, uh, this, this point is going to bring us back to what happened in Texas last week, because this is, this is kind of very important. Isn't it really weird to see capitalists in the United States and Europe who support EVs bragging about China and China's accomplishment? Mm -hmm. That's one of the weirdest things to see Americans and Europeans who, who are capitalists basically bragging about what communists do in China. Mm -hmm. It's kind of very weird. Just because they are going in one direction, they are taking the whole package together. Right. And, and they are not noticing what they are doing. This is related to what happened last week in Texas. Because all those who attacked me on Twitter and attacked all those people who talk about wind, and uh, they were kind of, uh, I became the enemy, and those who talked about what happened to wind in terms of freezing, uh, we became the enemy. Mostly they are Democrats and environmentalists. What they did not realize was the wind industry in Texas is a Republican industry. And they were defending Republicans. And they literally were defending George W. Bush, their first enemy. So we have here, they are siding with the communists. And here they are siding with the, it's the same story. That fascination, that obsession with renewable energy or electric vehicles, basically, is crossing those um, uh, boundaries, whether political boundaries or uh, ethical, if you want to go that far, uh, just because it is renewable or electric vehicles. Yeah, so I've said for, for some time now that I'm an energy agnostic, right? And so if you look at Texas, just to take what happened last week, I'm not a grid expert. You, we'll, we'll ask you your, your opinion here. Um, if you look what happened with Texas, I would say, okay, well, moving forward, what is the best way to do it? And as an energy agnostic, I would say, I'm throwing out hypotheticals here. You might say, well, you know, we need more nuclear, uh, but in this part, you know, wind and solar is okay. In this part, we need more natural gas, uh, maybe some coal here. Also, the grid's too far. We're depending on something from West Texas to get to East Texas. I, I would just say that as an energy agnostic, I would try to figure out what works. Let's start local and then kind of build it back out. Um, I don't know if you'd agree with that or not. Uh, I'm curious your thoughts on that. Um, but then on top of that, to your point, we don't have energy agnostics. And so what happens is, um, whether you agree on what the right mix or not is, everyone is so in the camp of, you know, renewables and wind and green or whatever, that they kind of miss the forest through the trees because 
you know, green technology, as you were well aware, it has a lot of bad impacts on the environment, especially from the, the battery mining side. So kind of unpack, how do you think about energy um, generally from the grid's perspective? Are you kind of agnostic or, you know, are you pretty much in a camp of, no, we need to use this for base load capacity? Um, and then how do we phrase this debate to maybe get people more to a more balanced position? Um, you are absolutely right. This morning, a congressman from New York uh, tweeted a tweet said, like, let's get off the fossil fuel industry completely so we can live or survive or something like this. And I looked at his profile and he's wearing a suit, kind of a shiny uh, suit. And you can tell it's 100 percent polyester. <laughs> Which for those who don't know, what, why is that relevant? OK, uh, polyester basically is made from oil and gas. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> OK. And uh, uh, this morning, I put a video uh, on my Twitter account. Basically, I really uh, hope everyone will go and watch it. Uh, whoever made this video basically a genius, because what they did is the guy is in his room and he everything that has oil in it just disappeared and he became naked in the street. Yeah, I've been saying real quick, I've been saying for years that if you want to get away from fossil fuels, oil and gas, especially we have Amish communities all over the U.S. I mean, there's Amish communities in Texas and Pennsylvania. If you want to, the Amish community is welcoming to you. <laughs> I think that's where you need to go, um, is to go live with an Amish community. That's the closest thing we have in modern day society. But, 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 but with the difference, allow me, please, because I lived in Ohio and I know many Amish families and people. Okay. The difference is the Amish people are handy people, which means that they can build a whole house and a whole furniture set for everything in the house by hand. The others cannot even <laughs> carry a hammer. They cannot sometimes know what the name of the hammer or the tools. Fair point, fair point, fair point. But, but you agree, Jilly, that's, that's the premise is what you're getting at is that if you want to, you know, when I'm, when I'm talking to someone about oil and gas, like they'll say, I say, well, how much do you think oil and gas impacts your life? They'll say, oh, I don't know, 10, 20%. And I'll say a hundred. I say, just look around everything that you, everything you see, use touch is either directly or indirectly from oil and gas 100 percent. unless you're out in the woods so if you can hear my voice right now unless you're out in the woods everything that you see or touch is coming directly or indirectly from oil and gas and you can if there's a great book called i pencil if you go read that book and then think about the implications of oil and gas and i pencil <laughs> you will begin to understand just how pervasive it is throughout our life absolutely absolutely so let's go back to what, what we can do in texas uh, now i'm talking about theoretically speaking uh experts can develop uh, models where we can, can create scenarios where we pick up the scenario where we have the maximum production of energy with the lowest environmental impact. So this is the easy part of doing it. But what you said is absolutely correct. That means we have an energy mix. And because certain people are taking the environmental issues as a religion, they will reject this energy or, or parts of that energy mix. But the fact is, if we are talking about maximizing energy production while minimizing environmental impact, this is the easy part. Uh, the fact is, if you look at the U.S. energy policy historically, at least what's written, and you look at various energy policies of, U of the U.K., for example, or Germany or France, etc., all of them are based on four principles, all of them. The first principle is diversity of energy sources because if you want to maximize energy security which basically goes into the national security or the uh, 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 whatever you want to link it to to the security of the nation 
the the idea here is you want to to diversify your energy sources to maximize your energy security so you can maximize your nation's national security the second one is diversify your imports of energy in terms of countries so you won't be a hostage to a certain country and the third principle basically is you want to minimize price volatility at the same time you want to encourage your domestic resources now to put this together of course is difficult because you can see the contradiction among some of those but the main idea here is we are going into two layers above each other of concentration the first layer is we have this attitude toward electrifying everything all the new homes basically most of them built in texas are all fully uh, based on electricity we know the, the heavy price of it today so we are going for concentration that's a serious problem even in a house and then within that that electricity is they want it to be generated from solar and wind that's another layer of concentration that goes against all the energy policy principles and energy security principles and yet you don't want uh, price volatility you cannot have it both ways because if you are going to get rid of oil and oil prices decline and then supply of oil decline well guess what's going to happen price is going to spike in the next period no I, I and think, you are going to have all kind of volatility in prices i think calling it contradiction is the right way because uh, a lot of people when they think about anything in life now in, in 2021 culture we don't realize we don't think often enough about the implications of the give and the take the i want this but to do this you know i would like to be making a million dollars an hour right now i'd also like to talk to a nas i can't do both at the same time right so i've got to figure out which one do i want to do um and so we all make these decisions and there's there's trade-offs there's giveaways um and then the larger the macro issue is the, the more macro the issue is the harder it is to figure out the complexity for me if i say well i want to go out to eat and i eat somewhere nice well you know, there's a handful of restaurants in the neighborhood or in my, in my, my town. I, I can make that choice, um, but I can't eat the two places at the same time. You know, I got, I've got to pick one. So you talk about energy mix or energy policy. Um, people say, well, I don't want to impact the environment. I don't want to ruin the environment. It's like, oh, okay, well, first off, anything that we do to the environment is going to impact the environment. So we have to acknowledge that. Um, you might not see it where you're at. Um, but then there's the, the other question of well, what happens when bad things happen? Well, you know, are we more concerned about... Um, potential pollution or we're concerned about people freezing to death. And so those are trade-offs and they're tough decisions that how do we inform maybe the average consumer about how to think about these trade-offs? Because we, what we don't want to see is an, an instance where it's worse than what we saw last week. Right. So right. My, my, the thing about last week was it was cold and it was bad and people lost their lives. I'm not trying to diminish it. That's better in my opinion than it being hot where you can't escape it with the cold. You can build a fire, you can put on some clothes, if it was like 110 for two weeks in Texas and we couldn't escape, um, you know, you might see a lot more catastrophic problems. I, I don't know. But um, how, so how do you inform people? You, about you, can, you can go to Cancun. <laughs> that, that is the advantage when it's hot. You can drive safely or fly safely <laughs> compared to when it's cold. That's very true. Very true. Um, but I, I, I do think that the heat seems to be more, uh, it's just harder to escape. Um, so how do you inform maybe the average consumer to how to think about these trade-offs? Well, the reason we teach economics in the first place is the trade-offs. 
And if people understood trade-offs, there is no reason to teach economics, period. So really the whole idea of teaching economics, whether at the high school level or higher, is these trade-offs. These are very difficult issues to explain to people. In fact, one of the problems uh, uh, I experienced in the, within the last week uh, is that the level of ignorance of uh, people of economics 101, because one of the problems that people did not understand that economics is called the marginal science. One of the reasons why it's called the marginal science because everything in, is in the market is measured at the margin. Prices are determined by marginal cost of marginal revenue. The last units determine the price. Everything, even decision make, making basically is determined by the, the last units. But people did not understand this. So they were arguing, well, when there's only 20%, how dare you blame everything on 20% and ignore the 80%. That's irrelevant. Because if you are short even one unit, that will lead to a higher price no matter what. And what happened in Texas, the price went up from $20 to $9,000 uh, even before Monday, before February 14th, when gas turbines went out. Prices were $9,000 before the gas went out. Why? Because we lost, yeah, a small amount, but it doesn't matter. In economics, it's the marginal that what determined these, uh, these prices. So that's why uh, I, I strongly believe that Economics 101 should be taught to all college students and all high school students by the best of the best teachers, not by just someone who can teach it, not by a graduate student, not by a new hire, simply because it is so important to life to understand these, these issues. The, uh, the other point I would like to mention is this, that the, uh, when we talk about uh, what happened in Texas last week, mm. and we are looking for solutions, one of the problems that people do not realize, or, or the policymakers do not realize, that, again, back to the uh, uh, trade-offs, that you cannot have it all, and you cannot have your cake and eat it. And for some sometimes you, you, you just wonder, I mean, uh, were those guys rational when they did what they did or said what they said? Okay. It, it is a fact that we already went through those freezes in the past. And now, because of politics, people are jumping on the wagon and saying, we told you it's climate change, and because of climate change, we have to do this and this and this and this and this and this. Well, if this... What happened in Texas last week, the result of climate change. And I really don't like to argue about climate change because it's a losing argument any way you, you take it. Uh, but if you want to talk about climate change and as a cause of what happened in Texas last week, then please explain to me what happened in the winter of 1894-1895. Temperatures in Houston were even lower than last week. We had a freeze throughout the south of the United States, even Florida froze. We have large number of people dying all over the place, many of them from hunger, mm. because the freeze lasted several weeks. Mm. So how do we explain that? There were no cars. There were no oil at that time. So what happened in the winter of 1894-1995? Of course, people will take this and say, yeah, because you are anti this and anti. No, this is not the case. This is a serious, legitimate question. Explain to me what happened at that time. There was no oil. There were 
no cars. Let me, Why let, I'm saying this? Or, or, sorry. Let me hop in there real quick. That's, that's a good point. You, you talk about teaching people economics. We should also teach people history. Because when you read history, and there's a book, I was trying to see if I have it, about China. Uh, it talks about, I don't know, well, back in China, about how they used to farm in this part of China, and then now they farm in this part of China. And this all happened. They can't farm here anymore now because the climate's changed, and so they had to farm here now. They had to move north, south, east, west, whatever it was. I can't remember. But it all happened pre-industrial revolution in the U.S., pre-industrial revolution in China. And, and so you talk about teaching economics, the, and I'm with you 100%. Also, a good historian, an, uh, an observant historian like yourself, you can read that and you just start asking those questions. Well, what did cause this? And so I, I, I think that's something that we, as people who are intellectually curious, we're trying to figure out and solve things. These are questions that we need to answer because if we're basing policy on climate change, then how do we explain previous climate events? And because we, we need to have some thought or explanation in that before we come into today. And if you cannot answer the 1894, 1895 question, then you might not have a good grasp of what's going on today. So I just wanted to throw that in there, get your thoughts on it. Yeah, well, a couple of comments here. The first comment is in economics, as you know, we have many fields like labor economics, industrial economics, energy economics, etc. And we do have two other fields. Uh, one field is called history of economics, which is exactly what you described. And there is another field called history of economic thought. The most difficult field in economics is history of economic thought. And the reason why? Because it's pure philosophy. And if any economist can understand history of economic thought, they will be leader in economics or whatever field they are in. Because that's really where the theory and the explanation of those historical events happen. And that's very important. But to go back to your point, I would like to mention uh, a true story. A few years ago, when the Saudi oil minister, Ali Naimi, the former uh, oil minister, was in Vienna for an OPEC meeting, and he left his hotel with his entourage going to another meeting in the street, and he was surrounded by journalists. I'm not going to name names or name the organizations, but there was this young woman from a certain liberal organization in the United States. Now imagine he's walking forward and all the journalists in front of him walking backwards. So they are, faces to, they are facing each other. And this lady just jumped in and started attacking him and telling him things about climate change and you guys, you don't care about climate change and you know, the usual rhetoric. But it was very strange to come from a journalist who came to Vienna for an OPEC meeting. And Ali Naimi was, uh, even that time, was an old man. I mean, he retired when he was 80, 81. And he, he is kind of a very decent uh, man. And he just kept walking. And you can tell he was holding his anger. And he is the man who does not get angry really kind of fast. And all of a sudden, he stopped. And you can see his face changed, became red. And he looked at her and he said, lady, don't teach me about climate change. It passed through my country 10,000 years ago. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That'll put her, put her in her place. So you, know, you, you mentioned OPEC. Let's, I know we're running up on time here. So let's talk about OPEC for a second. So let me just kind of tell you my thoughts and you tell me why I'm wrong, because that's probably the easiest way to do this. So prices, I haven't looked at this morning. They were, I know yesterday they were both above 60 or right there about it. Um, people were saying, hey, we're going to hit 70. A um, couple things, uh, get your thoughts on. One, we have the Saudis who took off their production of million barrels a day. I know they're getting ready to re-talk about that for April, May coming up soon. Um, what do you think about that? 
how high do you think prices might go? And I'll tell you kind of the, the things that I'm considering here. One, as the prices go up, we're coming off of probably the, and at least in my lifetime, the, the, you know, in 2020, we saw the most, um, the middle class and lower income classes become um, more poor. And so they can't afford higher prices, especially in emerging markets. So can we sustain higher prices? A, uh, B, if you're the Saudis or OPEC, would, why would you um, not be incentivized right now to start trying to put barrels on the market as soon as possible? Because the higher the prices go, the bigger risk you have of U.S. production ramping up or trying to ramp up. Um, and, and see, my thoughts is that the that OPEC Saudi types, uh, what they would like to see, uh, it, it, you know, is to keep price WTI at least peg out at sixty, low end fifty, and then occasionally dip sub fifty every now and then to kind of keep U.S. production in check. Where am I right? Where am I wrong? Where am I crazy? I love to hear your thoughts. Okay, uh, of course, this will take a lot of time, so I'll try to say it uh, in a very brief uh, manner. Uh, first of all, we know that the Saudis uh, cut, uh, uh, they had a voluntary cut uh, of 1 million barrels a day for uh, February and March. Most likely that will come back uh, to the market uh, in early April. Uh, that, that will have its weight on the market unless the Saudis have a different thought. Uh, that's number one. Uh, number two, we know that the pressure on prices right now is because of the decline in production in the United States. Uh, some estimates, they put it above uh, 4 million uh, uh, barrels uh, a day. Uh, uh, at the same time, we have uh, lost uh, uh, several refineries, some of the mega refineries, but the loss in production is larger than the loss in, refiner uh, uh, in refinery capacity. As you know, the demand for crude comes from refineries. So if uh, the loss in refineries is about 2.5 million, 2.7 million, the loss in production is about 4 million. So still kind of uh, 1.3 difference in this case, that puts pressure on prices. Now everything is coming back. So refineries coming back, U.S. production is coming back. The Saudis might add that 1 million. At the same time, we are seeing some movements from several countries, including Iraq, to increase, uh, uh, to increase production. The increase in Iranian production, as you know, um, people who know me, they know my view that there was no actual increase. I think people are just, uh, uh, they don't know how the Iranians operate and they are assuming that what was invisible that is visible now, they are counting it as increase. I don't think there is an actual increase in Iranian exports uh, in this case, but we will see an increase in the coming months. And the reason why, because we know for sure that Biden is not going to enforce Trump sanctions on Iran. Yeah, real, real quick, no. for folks who aren't familiar, uh, what you're saying is essentially during the Trump administration, uh, Iran was producing at X level, but um, because it was done in secret, kind of cloak and dagger, it wasn't being reported as such. And so you might have had whatever the number is, 50 percent. Uh, going to the market now that Biden's in place, um, the production is the same. It's just going to be reported as the full number or closer to the full number. So it look like Iranian production could increase, but in reality, it's basically been the same. Give or take a small amount, uh, uh, you know, insignificant matter um, during the past you know four years. It's just that's changing, right? That's that's absolutely correct. And the reason why it's visible, uh, of course, there is a, a political reason why they are making it visible, but there is a lot of economics involved in this one. Because if they make it visible, now the Iranian oil does not have to go through a third country where they have to pay them. Yeah. They don't have to pay mafia basically to do it. So they can, the Iranian themselves, they can get better prices and better revenues by making it public. So there are benefits uh, 
to that. Now they don't have even to do tanker to tanker transfer. They can have just one tanker. And that. So there are a lot of savings to the Iranians by just going public uh, with it. And they know that uh, Biden is not going to do anything about it. Okay. So where does that leave us? Um, are you, I mean, are you thinking $70 is a, is a, okay. There's, I guess there's two, two, ways, two ways to look at this. We might hit $70. Is that a sustainable price from the standpoint of, you know, will OPEC try to ramp up production to keep it down? And then just from the inflationary aspect, do you think that the global economy can actually handle $70 oil? Well, the global economy can handle $70 oil. We have evidence from the past to support it. This is not the issue, but we have other issues to consider here. We have the value of the dollar uh, is playing a role. Uh, at the same time, we have, other issues, what's, how the economies are going to react to the corona things, because we thought by now we are not going to have any closures and we are going to have open skies, and that's not the case yet. Uh, so all those forecasts basically were completely uh, completely off. Uh, on the other side, if prices go to 75, for example, I think, uh, uh, I, I seriously think that China is going to release large amounts from its strategic petroleum reserves and they are going to crush uh, the, the, at least the, the 75, and prices will go back probably to the 60s. And if they go even lower, the Chinese start buying again. Uh, so those who are talking about $100 oil, they are missing the point. We are not going to have $100 oil this year, neither next year. Uh, 70 to 80, yes, but China right now is playing a massive role. That role in economic, never play, no one in the history of the oil market played this role in the past in a, as a country. China is the first one. And we call that uh, oligopsony. Oligopsony, basically, I know probably very few people in the world heard of this term, but oligopsony when the buyer basically have a control in the market. China, on the upper side of prices, have more control over those prices than Saudi Arabia. It, Saudi Arabia it, might have a control on the lower part of the price, but on the ceiling, is controlled by China. Yeah, and so... Um... And this is not so. This is kind of a. I don't know how far back this dates. I know back in what 2017, 2018, China was kind of buying at the low prices, um, and then we saw that again last year as they're buying at the low prices. And so what you're saying uh, is essentially that as the prices go up, China is going to put that oil back into the market or prices down. They need low oil prices for their economy because that's lower gasoline prices and everything involved. So they'll keep the prices back down. So then, they, so then they can go back and buy the oil for cheaper again. Right. Okay. Let me explain this to the audience because this is, this is kind of very important. The United States has about 630 million barrels of strategic petroleum reserves. But those strategic petroleum reserves are regulated by the law. A president can order the release of the SPR in the United States or the fill. There is no problem with that. On the condition that there is a crisis to release. Has nothing to do with the price. So even if the price is $300, they are by law prohibited from manipulating prices. Now, I know politicians have their own ways of playing around this, but the fact is the U.S. law prohibits the U.S. government from manipulating oil prices using the SPR. Well, China does not have those laws. That's number one. Number two, the Chinese government know very well, and this is embedded in their psyche, that in the next few decades, the United States and other allies basically will block the Malacca Strait. And that's one of their scenarios for the future. And that will cut 80 to 90% of fuel supplies to China. 
So their idea is, if that's the case, I want to build massive strategic uh, reserves. So if I am cut off, I have enough oil to survive and run my industries. Mm -hmm. The only issue is, in the short run, before these things happen, they can play the market. And seasonality plays to their advantage because they can release large amount in the summer. And then by the winter, you have a decline in demand and you have a lot of oil. So prices decline substantially so they can buy it in the winter. They can play the seasonality forever. So okay, I'm going to ask you that you are, as always on point, I love it. <laughs> so final question for you. I'll make it an easy one here. What does this mean for U.S. shell producers? <laughs> are they... Sorry. What does this mean for U.S. shell producers? Are, okay, so if the Chinese are going to try to play the market, if you see some price volatility, if it goes up to 70, as long as it stays between you know 50 and 70, I think we're, we're okay. Um, but what, what does this mean? As we, I mean, obviously things can change, but as we sit here today, are you thinking that we're going to see um, uh, kind of blue skies for U.S. shell producers or will there be too much market volatility for them? When we talk about U.S. shale, basically, we have to look at two issues here. The first issue is, we, already, we are already in the core of the core, okay? So we cannot repeat what happened in 16 and 17. Mm. So we can grow again, but we aren't going to have the same growth that we experienced between 2016 and 2019. Mm. That's number one. So that's a, a, a supply issue. Yes. On the demand issue, the issue of shale basically, and this is one of the most interesting, the most interesting contradictions, that if we are going to have large number of electric cars that's going to hit gasoline in the United States big time. Okay. And what we get mostly from, from shale, gasoline. Mm -hmm. So if we end up with a failure of forecast, which means that the, the forecast of the IEA, OPEC, and uh, uh, Bloomberg New Energy Finance, basically, if their forecasts fail, and we are not going to have that many deliveries of electric vehicles, shale is going to be probably the best investment that we can invest in in the future. So it depends on, on those forecasts. If they are successful, then shale is going to be where, we, where it is today. If those forecasts fail, the only way to make money is to be in shale. So it's interesting because you say we're, 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 we've drilled the core of the core, um, and you say, well, it's a, good, it's a good spot to be. You know, we have so many companies that are involved in the space. It would seem like you're going to have a massive, you're still going to have a massive consolidation, though, you would, you would expect, right? Yes, yes and no, because even with that consolidation, we already have seen this in the, in the past. When company consolidate, you have those, uh, all the remnants on the side that are left over, they need to get rid of. So the little guy always have things to, 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 to do with the leftovers. Uh, we've seen it almost, almost in every deal where they have those, non-strategic areas they want to get rid of. So th there is always a room for the little guy. Okay. All right. Um, Anas, it was good as always to speak with you. I'm always learning when I'm following you on Twitter or talking to you. I appreciate your time. Um, as always, folks can follow you where at? Your Twitter, where else you want them to? Uh, uh, Twitter, uh, my name, my first name, my last name, at Anas, A-N-A-S, Alhaji, A-L-H-A-J-J-I, or my website, which is my name, AnasAlhaji.com. Uh, and uh, my tweets are in uh, Arabic and English. And please uh, push that uh, translate button because you will find some really interesting stuff from the uh, Arabic news and Arabic language. Yeah, I do. I do. I like that Twitter has that feature because I see you tweet something. I'm like, uh, it took me a while. I, figured, I, I guess I found it last year sometime, but 
for a while I was following you. I was like, yeah, I wish I knew what he was saying. And finally, I clicked on one. It's like, oh, you can translate it. So yes, that is a nice feature that Twitter has. And, and by the way, uh, today, uh, as you all know, uh, uh, Minister Ahmed Zaki Yamani uh, passed away at uh, an age over 90 years old. Uh, this guy was a fixture of the oil market for a very long time, for about 25 years. And he has a very, very colorful and full uh, history. He's been hijacked by terrorists. Uh, he, he was there in front of King Faisal when he was killed. Uh, he kind of witnessed all the crisis of uh, OPEC meetings in the 80s when the price collapsed uh, during the Iraq-Iran war, etc., and all his runs with the U.S. government, uh, the Arab, uh, what, they call, what they call the Arab oil embargo, which I don't believe is the true name of it. He was there. He was making uh, those promises and threats and solutions. In a sense, he was combining the oil ministry with the foreign ministry at the same time. Okay. Well, we will link to all that in the newsletter. Nas, it was good talking to you. Um, and for folks, we actually have two uh, podcasts, that, more podcasts that's coming out. One is a special guest. I'm 99% sure we'll be here tomorrow. We'll see. And then other, we'll talk about China. So we'll talk to you then.